So 2 Timothy chapter 2, review first a little bit. So 2 Timothy is Paul writing from prison uh, when he's been in prison the second time under Nero. Timothy is his son in the faith, someone he converted, someone on his second missionary journey he decided to bring with him, someone who he felt had the same heart and care for others that Paul himself had. And so Timothy is very close to his heart. He is his spiritual son in the faith. And Timothy, though, is someone who, Paul who is bold, Timothy is somewhat more timid in his demeanor. He's more shy. And so Paul, in both of his epistles to Timothy, encourages him about 25 times to be bold. Now, he doesn't necessarily use the word bold in every instance, but what he does is he says, I urge you to do this. I command you to do this. You must do this. And he's got 25 different places where he commands him to do that. He wants him to be bold. He wants him to be able to stand for the faith. And Paul is talking about the suffering that he has been through in in the first chapter um, a a little bit. And he talks in his suffering in the other epistles a little bit more deeply uh, and more uh, just he kind of gives you a broader scope in the other places. But... He wants Timothy to expect that suffering and not to be afraid of it, but he wants him to know that it's the power of God that's going to get him through those things because God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. Now, he ends chapter 1 with sort of a warning. He says, you know, Timothy, everybody in Asia, and at this, it wasn't like China Asia or Soviet Union Asia. It was more Asia as in Turkey for them. He says, everybody in Asia has turned away from me. And then he lists two names, Phygelus and Hermogenes. He lists these two specifically. They've turned away from me. He says, but there is one guy who has refreshed me. He has persevered, even though he could be uh, penalized for it and suffer for it. And his name was Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus. He was a refreshment to Paul because he wasn't worried about the persecution that he could face, but he was diligent to make sure that he could find Paul and serve him and assist him. Now, when we get into chapter 2, <coughs> we're going to find that he is going to fur- further encourage him. And he's got a lot of very good pictures in this chapter. This is one of my, in both Timothy's, this is my favorite chapter. So we begin in verse 1. It says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, he says, You then, or in some versions, therefore, because he wants to contrast the mindset Timothy should have with those in Asia who fell away, specifically, again, mentioned Phygelus and Hermogenes. They had fallen away and given up, but he wants Timothy to be strong. Now, this is, again, one of those verses where he's encouraging him. He wants him to be bold. He says, be strong. He wants him to be like Onesiphorus and persevere. Now, the question is, so how do you become strong in grace? What does it mean to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus? Because when you say be strong or something to that effect, it's implying that there's something, or it sounds like it's implying that there's something you can do to earn God's grace. And we know that's not the case. So what does it mean to be strong in the grace of God? So what it means as an overview is that we must stand firm against the enemy's relentless attempts to pollute God's grace with human merit. Now the book of Galatians focuses on this. What that means is 
we are saved exclusively by grace. It's not anything that we have done. It's not anything that we can do. It says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. So the enemy is going to constantly try to add things that, to our minds that we think we should do. Now, there's, there's always been an inclination throughout history of the church where the ch- church feels like it needs to add something. Because when you hear about the grace of God and it's accept Christ as your Savior and you can go to heaven because you've placed your faith in him, that seems too simple. For us, we always feel like we need to do something to earn favor back. Um, me, myself, when I struggle or I stumble and I sin, I go, okay, God, I did it again. I'm sorry. Okay, God, I'm going to make it up to you, and I'm going to make sure I'm diligent. I'm going to pray at this time, or I'm going to make sure I read this many chapters, and I would try to make up for it. But I, I can't make up for it. I messed up. All I can do is accept God's grace and say, okay, Lord, okay, well, I messed up. And God says, that's okay. I knew you were going to mess up. And he picks me back up. He says, let's get back on track. And that's really what God's grace is. It's not anything we're going to do to earn. It's we have to understand that it's all of him. It's none of us. And as I said, Christianity is unique it, in that God's grace is sufficient. Every other religion has to work for their salvation in some way, shape, or form. There's something they have to do. Muslims don't even know if they're going to heaven. It's whether Allah's feeling gracious that day if they even get in. And that's, you know, if he's feeling gracious at all. So, there's four requirements that we take from Paul's epistles, and there could be more, but these are four, four that I see that we need to consider if we want to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. <coughs> First one I just covered was, to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, you must be clear and stand firmly on the gospel's grace. And that is, again, Understand that it's all of God, it's none of you, and there's nothing you can do to earn it. Don't add anything to it. The second thing to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus is you must be clear on your standing in Christ. Now, you are saved, you are justified by his grace. But what does that mean exactly? Is there benefits to that? What does that entail? Well, when we are in Christ and we're in his grace, when God looks at us, he sees Not our sin anymore, because it's been washed away by Christ, but he sees his son. And if you read Ephesians, and I challenge you to do this week, read Ephesians chapter 1. And I'll read verses 1-3 right now. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So all the riches of Christ are ours because we are in him. Now, if you read chapter 1, Look for all the places where it says in him or in Christ. Now, you're going to find at least seven, but that's not all. If you look at chapter one, it's like almost like a a will of sorts, although Jesus is obviously alive, but it's or not a will, an inheritance where it shows everything we have in him and things that he has given us. It will say, for instance... It will talk about according to his will or his grace or his blood. Now, if you read all of chapter 1, look for all the places where it says his. And it talks about all these things that his or God the Father has done for us in Christ according to what his good will will or good pleasure was. 
And there's more than seven of those in here. His will, his glory, all these different places. I have it highlighted in my Bible when I first read it. But I challenge you to do that. You can see all the inheritance that we have in Christ. So be clear on your standing in Christ. Now with that, if we don't lay claim to them, and I don't mean a name it, claim it, one of the weird faith-based, you know, God wants you to have an airplane and just claim it. Not like that. It's more of, this is what God says we have. We just have to say, yes, Lord, I believe it. How do I, what do I need to do? And we get these blessings. And a lot of it is really us just submitting to his will for our life and doing what he wants us to do. It doesn't mean we're not going to have struggles and trials, but just submitting to what he wants us to do. Now, if we don't, we're basically living as a spiritual pauper. Now, and this is a, a real woman I'm going to tell you about. Her name was Hetty Robinson. She lived in the mid-19th to early 20th century. She was born in a well-to-do Quaker family um, who was very good with money. They were into uh, shipping and just a bunch of different things. She was very close to her father. And so when she was six years old, she would read her father the financial papers of the Times. So she was getting familiar and learning all these things. And by the time she was 13, she was the family's bookkeeper. So she was very good with money. She knew how to handle money. And by the time she was 32, she inherited what would be equivalent today to $82 million. She was very wise with money. She was very good with her money. But she was also known as a miser. She would not spend it unnecessarily. Now, she was known to not turn on the heater or use hot water because that would cost money. In one case, she was known to have scoured her coach or her horse-drawn carriage for a two-cent stamp all night because she didn't want to waste or lose that money. When her son broke his leg, she searched several days for a free clinic because she didn't want to pay for it. Now, the result of that was that his leg eventually did not set right, and several years later it needed to be amputated. Now, she died at the age of 81 with a net worth of what today would be $4.6 billion dollars. Now, she had riches that God had blessed her with, and she did not use them for anybody's benefit, not even her own. That is just like us when God has given us this inheritance, and we don't say, okay, Lord, I want that. And all we have to do is be willing. Now, we don't want to live as a spiritual pauper, pauper, however you say it, but we want to, we want that inheritance. So you need to understand your position in Christ through God's abundant grace in order to receive that inheritance. Now, number three, (coughs) excuse me, to be strong in grace that is in Christ Jesus, you must avoid appeals to become godly through legalism. And this was the Pharisees' error. They would attempt to keep holy by keeping certain standards, which again were man-made. This is again adding to God's grace. And they did that without dealing with their heart before God. Now, if you want to put yourself under a restriction for some manner, I don't suppose there's anything really wrong with it. It doesn't necessarily benefit you. But, thank you, love. But, it's it's not necessarily going to help you. Now, 
It's the heart that's got to be dealt with. Now, there's, it says in Colossians that adding all these things to your faith is not going to help you. It looks like it produces righteousness, but really it doesn't. So it's really, don't add anything to God's grace. You can't, you can't do anything to improve it. Now, the fourth thing, to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, you must avoid using the grace of God as a license to sin. Now, the idea here is the mindset, it's okay if I commit this sin, God will forgive me. But when someone says that, and I've had people say that to me before, I always quote Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, which says, What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? By no means we are those who have died to sin, so how can we live in it any longer? And when you look at verse, or when you look at three and four points here, both legalism and licentiousness are really appeals to the flesh, and they're really two sides of the same coin. Now, that is how you're strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That is what Timothy needs to do. He needs to realize all those things, and he knows those things. He was raised under Paul. He was a disciple, so he knows them. But Paul is very proficient in reminding people because we all tend to forget. <coughs> now, verse 2. In the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Now, the second thing you need to do to be a fruitful Christian, I don't know if I said the first one. The first thing you need to do to be a fruitful Christian is you must be strong in the grace. Now, the second thing you need to do is to entrust the gospel to faithful people who will be able to teach others. (coughs) Now, what he's entrusting him with is the knowledge of the gospel, the things he's been taught over the years, the word of God, proper doctrine, sound doctrine is what Paul would call it, healthy doctrine. These are the things he wants to transfer. And he says, entrust others with it because no pastor or elder or even individual in any one ministry can do it all on their own. They have to have help. When Moses had brought Israel to Sinai, to Mount Horeb, his father-in-law came from Midian and saw that Moses was seeing the people from morning till night. Every single one of the Israelites who had an issue would form a line, and Moses would sit there and help them with whatever issue they had. And Jethro, his father-in-law, said, you know, what you're doing is not useful. It's not going to help you. You're going to wear yourself out. You're going to wear Israel out. This is what you need to do. And I believe God gave Moses, this counsel through Jethro, because Moses was kind of, you know, overwhelmed. But Jethro, I believe, was a a man of faith. And what Jethro told him to do was, look, you need to find people you can trust who are reliable, who are going to dispense, and this is, again, my paraphrase, dispense God's word and be able to judge properly and fairly. And so he did that. He he got people who would be judges over 50 people, judges... (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. Judges over 50 people, judges over 100, judges over 1,000. And so he would do that <clears throat> to relieve himself of the burden of helping all the people. And then all the hard cases were brought to Moses. And it's the same thing here. You need to entrust people under you and teach them and tutor them. Now, we're all disciples of Christ, and we're all also, as disciples, supposed to be discipling others who are less far along in the faith as we are. Verse 3, to be, I'm sorry, verse 3, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, to be a fruitful Christian, 
The third thing is, there is a price you must pay. You must suffer hardship. And this is really non-negotiable. Everywhere you see in the New Testament, Paul or Peter or some uh, apostle says, you're going to suffer persecution, you're going to suffer hardship, you're going to suffer suffering. It's going to come. Now, for us in this country, it may not be as severe as other countries, but ridicule can still, in some sense, be considered suffering, or even the trials that you go through. But Paul uses three examples of those who suffer hardship for the greater good or for the greater goal. Now, the first of those is a soldier. Now, as a soldier, we must have an attitude that expects hardship. Now, verse 4 says, regarding the soldier, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs but tries to please his commanding officer. And, of course, for us, that is God or Christ. He is our commanding officer. Now, as a soldier of Christ, we must have an attitude of willingly, an attitude of willingly, I can't say the word, willingly detaching ourselves from things that distract us from the mission that God has for us. Now, a historian back in Roman times, his name is Grotius. I'm sorry, not a historian, a Bible commentator named Grotius, uh, said that legionary soldiers in the Roman army were not permitted to engage in husbandry or merchandise or mechanical employments or anything that was inconsistent with being a soldier. So they had to learn things that helped them with being a soldier and using their gladius sword and whatever they needed to do. But anything that brought them away from their training as a soldier, they were not permitted to do. Now, after they retired, obviously they could, but as an active-duty soldier, they had to do things that helped them get better to be a better soldier. Now, just as a soldier has to endure hardship, in the same way the believer has to be willing to endure that hardship as well. They will never accomplish as much for Jesus Christ if they don't. Really, the hardship that we go through really builds the character that God wants in us to develop us and help us grow in our faith. Now, there is a memorial highway, and it's by, uh, it's in North County. It's on 5, and it's called Jazz, I'm sorry, John Bazalone Memorial Highway. Have you guys ever heard of that before? Now, I like to see what the highways are named after and who they're named after, and I've, I've actually heard of him before, but I looked him up again. And he was a gunnery sergeant in the Marines. He was actually in the Army before, uh, earlier in the mid-1930s. But when he got back in, he wanted to join the Marines because he thought he'd have a better chance of getting into the battle and getting back to the Pacific. (coughs) Now, he was the only Marine in World War II to both receive the Medal of Honor and the Navy Cross. Now, he received the Medal of Honor during the Battle of Guadalcanal, which was the first pivotal battle in the Pacific. It's where we established our beachhead in the Pacific to start working our way up the Pacific Islands to get to Japan. So Guadalcanal was, was well, they were all bloody battles, but it was a bloody battle. Now, once they established the beachhead on Guadalcanal, him and his unit had to basically hold this perimeter line for Henderson Field, which was the airfield on a certain side. And he had a couple of units against 3,000 Japanese soldiers. So for three days, him and his unit fought off 3,000 Japanese soldiers. At the end of three days, there were him and two other people left in his unit. Now, he, once they ran out of 
ammo during, in the middle of one of the waves. And they were surrounded. A lot of times their supply line was cut off. So he fought his way through the supply line or through the enemy to get his supplies to his men back up to the hill. And then he repaired several machine guns so he could continue using the machine guns. And at the end of three days, they basically said of those 3,000 Japanese, they were all but annihilated. He had fought and stayed awake and gone really without eating for three days and sleeping to fend off the Japanese attack. And one of the witnesses there said he was, he was in a position, he knew what he had to do, and he did it. He, he pushed everything else from his mind, and he focused on what was in front of him. Now, for that heroism, and he was one of many who got the Medal of Honor on Guadalcanal, for that heroism, though, he received the Medal of Honor. So they took him, and they brought him home, and they started saying, hey, you're going to help us with war bonds and getting support for the war. So they, he got a welcome home parade. All these things happened. But his heart was not there. In fact, he tried to get back into the Marine Corps. He said, I need to get back there. I don't want to be over here. I need to get back where the fight is. And again, this is me paraphrasing what I've read. But they denied him several times. They said, no, 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 you're going to stay here. This is where we need you. Finally, they granted his request, and he was brought to Camp Pendleton for training and then sent to Iwo Jima, where he died on the field. He died on the field by taking... His unit was pinned down by Japanese pillboxes. So what he did is he fought his way up through the line to the top of the pillboxes, dropped grenades in them, and destroyed the pillboxes so his unit could advance. And then from there, he saw a tank was trapped in a minefield, so he walked into the minefield and helped guide the tank out of the minefield so it could continue fighting so it wasn't trapped. And in the middle of carrying more ammo to his guys, he was shot and killed by, or I'm sorry, he was killed by shrapnel is what historian, historians say. And for that, he earned the Navy Cross. Now, I tell you this because I find it interesting <coughs> that he knew the war was still going on. They brought him home. But he had won a battle. They brought him home. But he said, you know, the war's still going on. And so he was detaching himself from that civilian life. And he was married. But he knew in the grand scheme that what he was going to do in the war was more important because of what was happening. So he detached himself from civilian life to go and fight the war. And that's really what we should be known as Christians. You know, there, there's things in the world, and we're supposed to enjoy the world that God has given us. I love hiking. I love enjoying creation when I go hiking. I love doing it with my kids and, and friends. I love to do that. But there are times when I don't get to do it at all because what God has called me to do on his battlefield is more important than that. And as, as Christians, absolutely enjoy what God has blessed you with. But you need to keep your mind on the war, on the battle that God has placed us in. And we need to persevere through whatever it is. Uh, again, whatever ministry that you have or whatever you're going through, persevere. That's what the soldier does. He perseveres. Now, verse 5. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. So we're supposed to persevere with the attitude of an athlete as well. Now, Paul often drew upon uh, the world of athletics for illustrations in his, his letters. He would uh, track and field in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 
9.12, boxing in 1 Corinthians 9.26. He talked about wrestling in Ephesians 6.12. He brings it up several other places. And even though Roman, the Roman Empire was in charge at the time, they allowed Greece to continue her Olympic Games. So every year, from 776 B.C. to about 393 A.D., Greece held Olympic Games. And they did so uh, in Olympia, Greece. <coughs> now, in order to win the crown, you had to compete according to the rules. And punishment for cheating in ancient Greece was fines, public flogging, and statewide bans from any competition, which would be horrible for someone who was an athlete back then, not to mention the loss of your family's honor. You would be shamed. Now, in order to win our crowns, of which Scripture mentions five, we also have to compete according to the rules. Now, again, when it, there's all these questions that come up. It says, be strong in the grace. How do you become strong in the grace? And then it's, how does a Christian compete according to the rules? Well, the first way we do that is there are no shortcuts in the Christian walk. You can't hope to become spiritual just by osmosis and hoping that it's going to happen. If you want to grow in your walk with God, you have to put in the work. You have to put in the prayer. You have to put in the reading. You have to put in the study. You have to live your life in service to Christ by serving others in whatever ministry God has placed you. Victory is always achieved through staying the course without taking shortcuts. You remember back when I taught Jude, Jude says to contend or to agonize for the faith. Now, I used to lift weights a long time ago, and when you lift weights and you're, you're pulling the weights up and you can feel your muscles struggling and you're basically ripping your muscles apart to make them stronger, but you don't get stronger unless you rip them apart. Now, bodybuilders in Mr. Olympia, they have to put in the work to get the muscles they, have, they, they want, to get them the certain size, a certain shape. They have to have specific exercises for this part of the bicep or that part of the bicep, or to make the tricep look a certain way. There's all these things they have to do. They can't take shortcuts. They can't just go to the gym, throw up a couple of lat presses, and hope they have huge lats. There's a way to do things. Um, but what they can't do is they can't take steroids. That's cheating. Now, steroids has a lot of adverse effects on the body, none of which are good, so I don't know why they would do it. I guess for the win, but it's not really a win if you're cheating yourself, but... It doesn't strengthen the body in the long run. Now, there was a bodybuilding competition in Belgium in 2009 that was actually canceled because doping officials walked in and all the contestants walked out. There were 20 contestants. They all walked out because they were all doing steroids. Now, they were all big. They were all buff. They all looked the part. But... They weren't honest about the part. They weren't playing the part fairly. So if we want to be a Christian who plays by the rules, we don't just want to look the part and come to church on Sunday and smile and be social. We want to make sure we're acting the part in every aspect of our life. The second thing we need to do to follow by the rules is in context with what he speaks about grace. Because we are saved by grace, then being strong in the grace of God only and not adding to our salvation is to compete according to the rules. Being strong in grace is part of competing according to the rules, not adding anything to your faith. The third thing 
is to compete against the flesh and the world and not let them affect our race, the race that we're running in Christ. That's how we compete according to the rules. Now, the flesh and the world are a constant war with us, and, our, and they're trying to trip us up. They're trying to trip our spirit up. But playing according to the rules requires discipline and sacrifice. And I was reading one of the articles that I read, and it was about Usain Bolt. Now, he doesn't do any steroids. He doesn't do enhanced performing drugs, nothing. He's really just that fast because he trained and he was disciplined, and he's, he's, that's, he, he received the fruit of his training. And honestly, his, as fast as he is, affected the world. I mean, they, they've made several documentaries just on his speed and, and how he was disciplined to accomplish and overcome the things that he's gone through. Now, you have to sacrifice to play according to the rules. That's what all athletes do. They sacrifice things. I was reading another article about what Mike Tyson would do to train. He'd wake up every morning, run five miles. Then he would do 1,000 push-ups. Then he would do 1,000 bar dips. Then he would do a certain amount of pull-ups. I don't remember the amount. And then he would go do his boxer training. I would be exhausted after the first one. But, but he was disciplined, and he was a championship boxer at one time in his life. And the fruit of that sacrifice paid off. It's the same thing with our walk with Christ. God uses the most the one who is willing to sacrifice the most of him or herself for the cause of Christ. That's who God's going to use the most. Now, the last thing to compete according to the rules is to not live in sin. Not allow sin to reside in our life, not to foster it, not to let it make decisions or control us. Now, if there is a sin that we're living in, even if you're truly a Christian, you disqualify yourself from reward. You disqualify yourself from service in some cases uh, if you remain unrepentant and you would enter heaven with no rewards and you're essentially saved by the skin of your teeth. Now, that's not what God wants for anybody. I mean, there's really nothing in this world that's not worth sacrificing. We don't get to take any of it with us anyway. But we want to make sure we're, uh, we're not living in sin. What compete, I'm sorry. What competing according to the rules is not, what it is not is competing with other Christians about who we think is more spiritual or trying to do more than another person. That's not competing. Now, I was reading this, reading something else, and I came across this quote from a man named Jim Rohn. He was apparently a financial investor. But it stuck in my mind because really these things that the athlete does or the soldier does they have a goal in mind they're willing to sacrifice and persevere through it to get to that goal but what his quote says is if you really want to do something you're going to find a way so if you really want to accomplish a goal you're going to find a way to accomplish it then he says if you don't you'll find an excuse now, if we really want to follow Christ, if we really want to sacrifice, if we really want to be used, we're going to find a way to do that. And again, it doesn't mean we're not going to stumble. It doesn't mean we're not going to fall. God just basically grabs us by our belt, picks us back up, and we move along. But uh, I thought that was an interesting quote. Now, verse 6 talks about the hardworking farmer. 
It says the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. So we're supposed to persevere with the attitude of a farmer. As farmers are hardworking, so should all be who serve Christ. Now, whether it's for ministry or for work, Christians should be the example in their work ethic. The farmer who is hardworking will have a harvest, and he will get to eat of that harvest first. Now, what's unique about the farmer is, unlike the soldier and the athlete, there's really nothing glamorous about it. There's no, I mean, if you're a gallant soldier, a brave soldier, courageous, you, you might get a medal, you might get a purple heart if you're injured. You, you have, there's awards you can get. Athletes at the pinnacle of their careers, and when they win the big game, they get rings and trophies and whatever else it is. But the farmer doesn't really get anything. He gets to eat the fruit of his crop. And he works just as hard. I think it's also important to notice that Paul practiced what he preached. Paul was actually a very hard worker. Now, people would say, well, Paul, Paul he did was walk around and preach the gospel. Now, he did do that. But that's harder than you think. But that's also not all he did. If he received support from other churches, what he would do is he would scale back on the work he did for himself to help provide for his ministry so that he could preach the gospel more. If he received less support, well, his occupation was a tent maker. He would actually make tents to support not just him, but others in the ministry who were with him. So Paul was constantly working. He was constantly busy about the Lord's business, no matter what aspect of that business it was. What we put into our Christian walk and our ministries is what we're going to get out of it. Um, One commentator said, you often get out of things according to the measure that you put into them. If you are putting forth little in your Christian walk, you should expect little result. Verse 7. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Reflection produces insight. And here, that insight is perseverance. He's given us three examples, three different ways to learn, three different pictures of how we can persevere. The soldier who stops fighting never sees victory. The athlete who stops running the race will never win the race. The farmer who stops working before the harvest is complete He's never going to see the fruit. The point here to reflect on is persevere no matter what you're going through. Perseverance is the key. Now, verses 8 through 13 are going to show us three examples of how present suffering leads to future glory. (coughs) Verse 8 says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, This is my gospel. Now, the first example of how present suffering leads to future glory is that of Jesus himself. (coughs) Jesus was raised from the dead after suffering on the cross to eternal glory, where he sits right now at the right hand of the Father. (coughs) Excuse me. This was also the message that Timothy was supposed to keep at the forefront of his mind. This is why Paul says, remember, not because he thought he'd forget. Now, the greatest credential of the authenticity of Jesus Christ is his resurrection. There are some people who object to... Excuse me. There are some people who object to Christianity because they say, well, no one rises from the dead. We don't see that every day. It can't possibly be true. 
But the answer to that is, you're right, we don't see that every day. That's precisely why we can believe that Jesus rising from the dead is important. I mean, there were 500 witnesses to the fact. If it was something we saw every day, then Jesus rising from the dead, it wouldn't be worth mentioning. It wouldn't be that big of a deal. But he did rise from the dead, and there's 500 witnesses to that. (coughs) Now, when Paul says of the seed of David, he's trying to show that Jesus was fully man. And at the time, the temple was still around. Now, what could happen to any Jew who heard Jesus Christ of the seed of David was the Messiah? is they could go to the temple and look up all the genealogical records and they could see that, oh yeah, there's Jesus, the son of Joseph, the son of Jacob, the son of Heli, the son of whoever it was, and they could go all the way down the line and see his lineage. So it was proof of who Jesus' lineage was and the Messiah was supposed to be of the lineage of David. So any Jew at that time could go and look that up. Now when Paul says my gospel... It's not in the sense of that he made it up or it's something that he's created to give. It's in the sense that it's become personal to him. I have my gospel and you have your gospel. The gospel, how Christ related to you, how how you needed him. It's how... How do I put it? Everybody comes to gospel for, or comes to Christ for a different reason. It's how he touched you with his gospel. It becomes personal when it's your gospel. Now I can say, or someone can say, well, yeah, so-and-so is preaching the gospel. And it may not mean anything to you. But if it's your gospel because it's personal and you realize that it was that gospel, that good news of Jesus dying on the cross and raising from the dead, when that hits you, it's your gospel. And that's what Paul is trying to relay to Timothy. Now, verse 9. For which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. I think this verse is ironic. Because at that point when Paul's writing this letter, he's probably, well, first of all, someone else is writing it for him. He's, um, He's speaking it, they're writing it but he's probably chained to a Roman guard. Every time he was, he was a high-profile prisoner, so he had his own guard. He was chained to a guard. He said, I may be chained, but the word of God is not chained. And as much as the Bible has been maligned and burned and banned throughout history, it's remained unchained. There's nothing that's been able to stop it. It's still the exact same Bible that we've had for thousands of years. That's not been changed. Now, verse 10. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, this is the second example that we have of how present suffering leads to future glory. Now, Paul suffers for Christ's sake so that others will obtain that glory in the future, that glory that comes with going to heaven and being changed by Christ. So Paul is suffering for that reason. But additionally, Paul's going to receive that glory because of the sacrifices that he's made. It also shows another reason we should endure. The enduring that we do through trials and suffering, it's not just for our character, but others see how we go through things. Others see how we react to things. 
And when they see that, that affects them as well. We do it and we endure, not just for our sake, but for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because the comfort that we are comforted with when we go through trials, we're able to give that to others who also need comfort. Verse 11 through 13. Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he also will disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself or disown himself. This is the third example. And this third example is an ancient Christian hymn, actually, that teaches that endurance earns rewards, eternal rewards. So if we endure, and the principle here is our present difficulty and trial is worth enduring. Now, remember, the soldier doesn't win the the victory unless he continues fighting. He wouldn't have gotten the Medal of Honor if he'd just given up and run back to the beach. But he endured. And we endure because not any reward we're going to get in this life, but the eternal reward that we're going to get in heaven. Now, if you remember back to chapter 1, Paul spoke of those in Asia who abandoned him. These people did not endure for Christ. The difficulty was too great. They walked away. Yet there was one who was willing to endure, and that was Onesiphorus that we talked about. Now, it says, if we disown, and this is also, others, other versions say deny. Now, you can disown or deny Christ by the manner of living that you live or the way that you live. You can deny who Jesus is. You can deny what Jesus has done for you. Or you can deny what he commands you to do. Now, they, this was an early hymn sung by the church. Now, they sang this. And there's going to be Christians who go, I don't want to take part of that. And there are going to be genuine Christians who simply struggle. But they're going to be disowned as far as their reward goes. Now, it says if we are faithless... I think we are all faithless at one point or another. Not faithless as far as we've lost our faith, but faithless as far as maybe we've dropped the ball. God says to do something, we said, no, I don't really want to do that. And so we kind of let our faith drop. But God, he is faithful regardless. Maybe we don't, yeah, maybe we don't do what he calls us to do. Maybe we're not faithful in that. He's going to remain faithful, and he's going to find someone else who's going to be faithful. So we want to be the person that he wants to be faithful. Now, there are several early church creeds like this one sprinkled throughout the New Testament, and these are the earliest historical sayings of the church, and many of them are from the first decades of the church existence, and I believe this is one of them. But other ones are the gospel, This is an early church creed found in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7. There's another one that I'm probably going to read next week if I do um, communion. It's 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. Now you read these, and the way it reads is, Paul will say, For I delivered unto you that which I also first received. What he received was these creeds 
because the New Testament wasn't in written form at this time. It took probably at least 15 years for the first book to be written, or the first epistle to be written. So they had these little creeds, and everybody in the church would memorize them. And it was something they could do, something they could latch onto so that they could grow in their faith. Another one would be this one right here that I just read. And another one that talks about Jesus coming in the flesh would be 1 Timothy 3.16. And there's at least a dozen more that are scattered throughout the New Testament. Now, verse 14. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Keep reminding. God's people need to keep the gospel at the forefront. And it's what Paul's encouraging Timothy to do. And it's really the thing that troubles the church the most, in my opinion. Because the word should always be central. The teaching of the word should always be central. When we start doing weird social things, not that we're supposed to be getting together and doing social things, but when it becomes just the social club or the social function, or it becomes the leader who starts to say things because it makes the people feel good, or they hear it and they go, oh, I like that message, you know, but I don't like the message of so-and-so because it was just too harsh or, you know. When it becomes like that, it becomes, it pushes the gospel to the side. And giving the gospel is supposed to be the central importance to the church. Now, the things that we're not supposed to argue about, quarreling about words, those are everything that's not part of the central tenets of the faith. Now, I believe in the rapture. I don't believe it's a central tenet of the faith, though. I know there's other people who believe other things, and they can believe them. And we can have useful dialogues together, but if it starts to become an argument or a quarrel, it's something we're supposed to walk away from. Mode of baptism is another area where people like to argue. Again, it's not a central tenet. Should you be baptized? Yes. Should we argue about the mode? No, it's probably not that important. But let me include that the central tenets of Christianity are unchangeable, and they're solid. The foundation is sure. And the main ones that you need to know, Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose again from the dead. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's going to come back. And there's a few more that I could add in there, but those are central. Those are not going to change. The fact that Jesus Christ came and died for the sins of humanity, that's the thing we should always, always be talking about. Verse 15. Do your best... To present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Now, my kids do something called Awanas, and this is the theme verse for Awanas. <coughs> now, it says, do your best. Now, I'm not fond of this translation. I don't like the way it puts it. Uh, I don't think you get the intensity from the actual Greek word, which means to hasten, to make haste, or to exert oneself and give diligence. Thank you, sir. Now, it is, in other versions it says, give diligence. 
It is to go above and beyond, to go out of your way or to exhaust yourself. Now it says, approve to God. Present yourself to God as one approved. So the question is, how is Timothy or how are we to be diligent to be approved to God? Timothy's goal was not to present himself approved to people. He was to approve himself to God, which means there are going to be ministers and pastors and other people who teach or other Christians who maybe not be teachers at all. They say things that maybe we don't like, but maybe they're biblical. And maybe the things that person is doing are correct, and those are the things that God wants us to do, to be honest about what the Word says. Now, if we start doing tickling ears and saying things that make you feel good, now there's things in the Bible that definitely make you feel good, and they should. But if we're just teaching for that, then we're not doing things to present ourselves approved to God, but to people. Now, it says a worker who does not need to be ashamed. I don't know... I know my kids don't want to use them as an example, but there is a time every week where I'll have them do a chore of some sort. And they'll say, okay, I finished the chore. Can I go watch TV or can I go do this or can I, whatever the case may be. I go, you did it according to my standards? Oh, yeah. Okay, I'm going to get up and check. Well, hold on. Let me go check. They do that because... All of us find it embarrassing when we do a job poorly and then someone comes and checks on it because we know they're going to be nitpicky about it. Now, even at work, and I work hard, and I honestly, I exhaust myself at work because I really want to do a good job. And when I have a, a day where I think I've really put forth a lot of effort, and then we do a walk and they start nitpicking that there's little things here and there, it can be aggravating, very aggravating. But the point of them doing it is to make sure that I notice those details hopefully in the future and maybe try to get done better. Now, I understand why we do it, but it can be embarrassing for us if we know we haven't done a good job and then someone checks on it. Now, God, he sees everything that we're doing. So we can lie to others and others can see, oh, so-and-so looks so spiritual doing whatever. But... God has seen everything. He sees whether we're being diligent and hard or not. So we need to make sure that, again, when it comes to being approved to God or to people, that God is the one we're trying to approve of or get approval from with our diligence. So we need to make sure that we're scrutinizing our work first. I have empty pages in there for some reason. Okay. Now, correctly handles the word of truth. How was Timothy to be diligent? He was to correctly handle the word of truth. He was to make sure God's word was taught correctly, not watered down, as I just mentioned. You need to make sure he didn't use it as a ginsu knife and just randomly chop things up and, and accidentally hack people. He was supposed to make sure God's word was a surgical knife that helps cut the sin out of people's lives and that it is also used as a two-edged sword to tackle whether or not our motivations were proper or not. It's also to be used. He was to use it as water that helps us grow in our faith. So three things. It helps cut the sin out of our life. It helps 
make sure our motivations are correct, and it waters us when we read his word to help us grow in our faith. Verses 16 and 17 and 18. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Now, godless chatter, this goes back to, again, anything that takes the focus off the gospel and God's word. He has a couple of descriptions of these false teachers. (coughs) One is that they're gangrenous, or they are like gangrene. And just like gangrene needs to be cut from the body, sometimes a leg or an arm, they have to be cut off and essentially told to leave the church because their message will infect the church. And always the hope, of course, is restoration, that they'll repent. But as long as they have that false teaching, they're supposed to be cut out and kicked from the church. Now, the second thing is they're departers from the truth. So what that means is they actually started out on the right path, but they veered off and departed for whatever the case may be. It could be the world. It could be the flesh. But they departed. The third thing they do is they spread lies. And in this case, it talks about the resurrection specifically. But even though it seems they they were talking about the millennial kingdom had already come, um, you can start off one path that's wrong and all of a sudden you're veering into all sorts of places that are wrong and you can fall away into false doctrine. In the book Pilgrim's Progress, there's a point where there's these two paths parallel, one to the eternal city and one that looks like it's parallel to the eternal city but it goes elsewhere. I forget where it goes. But the eternal city goes straight, and it's kind of a rocky path at the moment. But the path parallel, it's smooth, it's easy to walk on. And they see someone walking on it, and they go, hey, where's this path going? He goes, oh, the eternal city. Are you sure? Oh, yeah. But as they keep going, the path gets farther and farther away. And the same thing happens with false doctrine. If you get caught on something that's wrong and you don't correct it, you can get further and further away as you keep accepting things. So you've got to make sure you're always comparing what people say and even your own opinions to God's word to make sure that you're correct. Now, the fourth thing that these people do is they destroy the faith of others. Instead of building them up in the faith, as it says in Jude, the result is a departing from the truth and a destroyed faith. I'm going to end there, but let me (coughs) sum up. Three things you need to do to be a fruitful Christian. You need to be strong in the faith, or I'm sorry, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We're entrusted with the gospel, so we need to make sure that we're transferring that to others so that they can also teach the gospel. And the third thing we need to do is persevere. How did I put it? You need to suffer hardship. There's a price we must pay. Now, I want to encourage you that whatever you're going through, if you're going, you may not be going through anything right now, but if you're a Christian, you eventually will. 
persevere to the end. It says many places throughout scripture to persevere. And it's not easy. And I, you know, even at work, when they load on the, the tasks, it's, it's easy for me to get in a mindset that says, you know what, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm done. This is unrealistic. But I can't stop. And I can't stop because all I ever hear in my head is God telling me to push through it. He said, persevere. Because really, I mean, my job's hard. But there are so many people in this world worse off than I am. And God has given me a task to do. He's given you a task to do. So there's going to be times where it's hard. And we need to push through and persevere. And he's given us plenty of examples here. I encourage you to read it again this week. And read Ephesians 1, 2 and see the blessings that God has given us as an inheritance. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I do pray (coughs) that we would be strong in your grace. That your grace would be sufficient for us. We wouldn't add anything to it. Lord, help us to rest in your grace. And Lord, no matter what we go through in this life, when we persevere and we put you first, there is reward at the end. Lord, I just thank you so much for the things that you've done for us, the things that you've blessed us with. And for anybody who is going through trial, Lord, pray that you would strengthen them and give them that strength to persevere. In Jesus' name, amen.